You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, and now I really am going to guarantee it's going to be 60 minutes, okay. for reasons that will become apparent very shortly, <laughs> we're going to be talking about Vincent and the Doctor, so you don't have to. again. Hi, I'm Tim. And I'm JR again. And the reason Matt is saying again is because we've actually been talking about Vincent and the Doctor for a full half an hour, only to suddenly discover that the recorder wasn't turned on. JR's fat fingers failed to press the recorder properly. (laughs) And so we we said really profound things that unpacked Vincent and the Doctor amazingly in ways that nobody else has ever done before. It was probably the and best review of Vincent was, the Doctor that's ever been. If somebody had been writing it down, we could have published it in like, a journal of psychiatric health. <laughs> I would I would guess. <laughs> and now and now we're just it's just sloppy seconds now. It is, it's sloppy seconds. Yeah. Oh well, uh, there we go. I'm putting it down to a technical error. Okay. <laughs> um fat fingers. <clears throat> I do have some other orders of business. Seeing as we've done, <laughs> seeing as we've done Vincent and the Doctor for half an hour. What what does Brendan Day say about it? You'll find out. You'll find out. I'm going to read the comments out again. In, and in we're the probably going to accents, please this time. Okay, I didn't do the native act- accents last time, but I will do this time. Seeing as Tim has requested it. Oh, Tim, who's back <clears throat> after a, yeah. he came a few weeks ago to talk about the hungry earth and cold blood. And uh, it's been so long since he's been here, it just shows what utter tosh we've been up to for the last few weeks <laughs> because we haven't moved on. We're on the very next story. Indeed. Um, no, I'm going to do the other orders of business first instead of saving them till the end because that'll allow us to clear our heads before we have to start repeating ourselves a bit. Okay. Um, the theme that's been on the start of this episode and last week's which I didn't get to properly talk about last week, but which people will have heard before because I used it on episode 200 about three months ago. It's from Chris Lovder. Okay. And, um, yeah, he he gave it to me at the same time as the one we were using um, up until two weeks ago, and I forgot to say last week, but so now I've said it. Excellent. Okay, that sounds like sloppy seconds already, doesn't it? <laughs> I've lost the ability to talk. Well, should we should we do what we did before, which is and talk about say what we thought of the episode? Oh no, let's do the other. Oh, one. you're doing the, uh, the yeah. Okay. Well, there's only two things. There's a quick okay. film review, which isn't much of a oh, film okay. review. Oh, okay. And the Starburst Film Festival. Oh yeah. Has announced announced this week as we record. Graham Harper and Toby Whithouse. Wow, nice. Okay. So the Starburst Film Festival runs in Manchester for three days across the August Bank Holiday weekend. And obviously it's got a lot more than just Doctor Who going on there. Mm. All sorts of things going on there. And if you want to find out about it, where it is, how much it costs, it's not expensive. And uh, what dates it is, starburstfilmfest.co.uk is where you can find everything out. And I'm going to do my absolute damnedest to be there myself. Okay. Even though I've never been to Manchester before and I'm not sure how to find it. You just head north, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but when Manchester I head north... Manchester pretty much stretches across the entire country. <laughs> like like the Hadrian's Wall, it's just it's just there in the Midlands. It's endless. Are you... well, it's not in the Midlands, you fool. Manchester. Manchester. It's a bit north for the Midlands, isn't it? It's the North Midlands. It's Lancashire. Yeah, in the North Midlands. I um, okay. I want, that's how you've just made a few enemies, I should think. <laughs> if you're Scottish, it's very much Midlands. No, I take it you've never been north Scottish, of Luton. It's, not, it's yeah. not even in the European Union. No one's going to be putting you up. I have uh, been. I have been, I have been to Manchester. I have been to Manchester. You've been to Manchester. I have been to Manchester. Yeah. And it's you still think it's city. in the Midlands? 
Well, I was staying in the Midlands when I went to Manchester. I was in Stoke-on-Trent, that's in the Midlands. Oh. And it's only about... Yeah, Stoke-on-Trent is technically in the Midlands because it's... About four, yeah, because last time I was there, I was in, living in Stoke-on-Trent at the time as well. Yeah. And I went yeah. wandering around the Trafford Centre dressed as a Stone Age man for uh, an afternoon. Stoke-on-Trent. for fun or...? Uh, for fun and profit. Oh, really? <laughs> were you... I was, being, you, well, I was being like paid. Peddling. I was being paid to do it at the time. Oh, okay. By uh, okay. by the good people at Alton Towers. Oh wow. Okay. Where Stoke on Trent is technically the most northerly point of the Midlands. So oh, much okay. so that half the population of Stoke on Trent don't consider themselves part of the Midlands oh, at right. all. Right. Okay. So it's the outer the outer Midlands. Well, in there's the same really, way, there's a really nice. This is in the same way as Exeter is outer Bristol. Well, there's a, there's yeah, a really nice, there's a really nice area of Exeter called St Leonard's, and all the areas around it. You notice the estate agents are slowly stretching St Leonard's out further and further until St Leonard's has become like a five mile long. They can only go so far east before they meet the other St Leonard's near yeah, Hastings, yeah. coming back the other yeah, way, presumably. Absolutely. So. This is fascinating stuff for anybody who's listening to this podcast now. (laughs) A film review, briefly, even Lambs Have Teeth, it's called, and it's selling itself as a revenge thriller along the lines of something like I Spit on Your Grave. Oh, nice. But it's, well, the plot in a nutshell, two teenage girls are heading off to... um, an organic farm for the summer where they're going to go and work on an organic farm. It's like a working summer holiday sort of thing. But on the way, they get kidnapped by a bunch of yokels from this little village in the middle of nowhere. They get banged up in a couple of shacks absolutely in the middle of nowhere where they get systematically raped by all the villagers. And then uh, instead of um, getting killed at the end of their time in captivity, which is what these villagers normally do, the two girls escape and spend the last 20 minutes wreaking their bloody revenge on everybody who's had their wicked way with them throughout the rest of the film. Is this in America? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's yeah, but it's one of those things where if the filmmakers had gone for shock tactics and literally made something like I Spit on Your Grave, it would have worked. Mm. Because tonally and thematically, it would have been a piece of work. Mm. And whether you like that thing or not, and I mean, people do like that kind of thing. You know, films like Saw and The Human Centipede and what have you have their audience. If they'd have done that, it would have worked. It would have appealed to a certain type of audience. And, you know, if you don't like that kind of thing, you just don't watch it, do you? I've got a friend who, who calls The Human Centipede accidentally. She calls it The Very Hungry Human Caterpillar. Oh, dear. <laughs> and she did, she did it genuinely. It was just a mistake. Wow. And from that point onwards, that's all I can think of. When I think of the human centipede, it's this mash-up between the very hungry caterpillar and the human centipede. But the trouble with even even lambs have teeth is that for the first hour, the director seems to want to treat it seriously. Mm. So the I mean the first hour is should have been really really horrific, and actually it's just really really dull. And you don't sort of... But these girls are stuck in this really hideous position and you don't get any... You don't get any real sense of the danger that they're in Mm. because he's being really careful with the material. And you know what? If you're being really careful with the material, you're kind of distancing yourself from it, aren't you? And putting up a a shield between the audience and the, uh, the picture. And... And the other thing is as well, because he's trying to treat it seriously, most of the characters who are in the film who are the really hideous villagers, instead of being really hideous villagers along the lines of something like The Hills Have Eyes or, Tex- yeah, or yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre or whatever, yeah. they're just regular people. Some of them are like quite nice. So it is Straw Dogs. It is like Straw Dogs. Well, yeah, but that's this, what I mean. It's kind of normal fairly nice people doing horrific things. Yeah, but what I mean is the material in this case right. is far closer to something like The Hills Have Eyes, isn't okay. it? Okay, so it needed to be camper. Well, it didn't need to be... Yeah, it could have either It could have either been camper or it could have been just really nasty. Right. But it's neither camp nor nasty. Okay. 
and so it just doesn't work. And then in the last 20 minutes, when all hell breaks loose and these two girls go on this absolute killing spree filled with Bruce Willis-type jokes when they off people, oh. it just really falls apart because it's like you've suddenly moved into an entirely different type of movie. And there's no... There's no sliding from one type of the movie into the other. It just it literally just switches. Yeah. It just doesn't work at all. Okay. The first 60 minutes is very dull, and the last 20 minutes is very entertaining, but in a way that leaves you feeling really sick because he's tried to treat it so seriously for the first 60 minutes. Mm. He's tried to treat it sensitively for the first 60 minutes. You can't go from treating something sensitively to turning it into a comedy bloodbath. It just doesn't work. Mm. So I, Unless you're making From Dust Till Dawn. Well, yeah, but even then, the first hour of From Dust Till Dawn is all Quentin Tarantino-isms. Yes, yeah. So it, the the jolt when it goes into the bloodbath is not so drastic. Yeah. Here it's like it goes from. The archers. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, it goes from the archers to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like that sounds fantastic. Yeah, but, it, <laughs> but it doesn't work. But it doesn't work. Okay. Well, that's a shame. Right. Let's talk Vincent and the Doctor, shall we? Oh yeah. Let's <clears> talk. <throat> again. Let's do the quotes. Okay. Brendan Day says, Beautiful, a story that needs no monster except the ones we all carry within. Dylan Reese says, A beautiful bit of TV, tugs at the heartstrings every time, and Tony Curran is sublime as Vincent. Kieran Hyman says, Bit wet. We watched it. <laughs> Sorry. He, he asked me to do this. Oh, no, no, I'm talking about the comments, not your accent. Yeah, this time. Oh, okay, I didn't realise you were putting an accent on. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't but I'd uh, gone. Say a bit more and then I'll do the same thing about your accent. <laughs> Kieran Hyman says, Bit wet. Rewatched it a couple oh. of years ago. Still a bit of a mope around. Though I remember the invisible monster being an interesting one and the bloke playing the artist was quite good. It's almost like a Kenny Everett. No, a Kenneth Williams impression you're doing. Anyone called Kenny, basically. Yeah, yeah. David Kitchen says... Easily my favourite of the Matt Smith episodes. A really nice story. And Bill Nye is one of three or four times I've really been impressed by a guest actor in New Who. Mm. <laughs> Rob Irwin says, An amazing episode. I don't know anyone who dislikes it. Everyone points out the monster is barely needed. But aside from that, just great. Mm. Steve Herr says, the portrayal of Vincent was captivating and on several occasions I felt myself welling up. Let's not mention the invisible chicken monster, though. And Anthony Weird Bean Morin says, heart-rending. But the monster of the week? Okay, it had to be there. But a giant chicken? I almost expected Peter Griffin to come wading in. Right, last time I read these comments out, I asked who Peter Griffin was. So I shall do that again, not for my own benefit, for the, but for the benefit of anybody listening. And we said know. in unison that he's from Family Guy, and he's a character that gets into a fight with a giant chicken periodically through the series. Yes. There we go. Recur Next. Recurring series. <laughs> the recurring chicken monster yeah, fighter. Recurring <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And we defend, so, um, I think we all, we all defend the, the monster. We don't. We don't agree that. Oh my God! Are we literally just going to tell people this is what we said, rather than actually saying it it's again? It's really difficult. These are the following points you've missed. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we'll do it naturally. We'll get into it naturally. Well, yeah. Uh, okay then. Let's. <laughs> rather than just say, well, we talked about the fact that there was a chicken monster. We actually said we thought it needed to be there. Okay. Right. Rather than say that, I will say what I said. Yeah. Or I will attempt to say something along the lines of what I said, which was. This is a Doctor Who story, and in order to have a, and not in order to have a reason for the Doctor to be there, that's a sci-fi concept that makes it part of Doctor Who, a monster of the week, in other words. Mm -hmm. But what you need is the Doctor and his companion. They travel around from place to place and from time to time, but more specifically from genre to genre. Mm -hmm. And each week, they'll turn up in a different genre of storytelling. They will have a story within that genre of storytelling that's relevant to the genre that they're in and is also relevant to them, to 
the ongoing story of Doctor Who, if you will. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's relevant to an ongoing story arc, but that just means it's relevant to the way in which they have their adventures. Mm. In other words, they need to turn up, solve something, and then once they've solved something, they have an excuse to leave and move on to the next one. If there hadn't been a monster here, there'd have been no prerogative for them to turn up which is a metatextual thing because, you know, obviously within the text, they don't know where they're turning up and why. But metatextually, they wouldn't have had a prerogative to turn up. And at the end of the story, they wouldn't have had an in-fiction reason to be able to say, right, we've done what we need to do. We can move on again. Yeah. And, and my defence of the appearance of the comments that we received uh, attacked the appearance of the monster. Oh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But okay. I mean, well, do you think Where's I finished that point? Uh, yeah, um, so you, so your point is that the monster, in general, is essentially a the story because it's the... part of the structure of the story. Yeah, yeah. And I'd, I'd go, I'd go one step further than that, or I'd move on to to the actual appearance of the monster and and what the monster means in the story. Well, what the monster means is the relevant thing, isn't it? Yeah. We'll talk about the appearance in a minute. Then let's talk about what it means. But Tim, you've not yes. said anything yet. Sorry, so... Jay. I know I've been listening to you. I know, but by this uh, time in the first time we'd been recording, you'd said loads. This is true. This is true. Was it, did you like the episode? When, um, you first, when you first saw it, did you like the episode? Oh my God, are you taking over, man? <laughs> well, it's, it's, we're on the monster. It's a question. Yeah, I know it's a question. This is turning into a disaster. But we're on the monster. Let's stay with the monster okay. for a bit. And then we'll go into the hows and whens and why fors of what we saw the first time. Yeah. The monster, Tim. Okay, does the monster work for you, regardless of the rest of the episode? Yeah, the monster works for me. Um, I, like you said, I can see why it's there um, and the 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 purpose it fulfills, and I don't have a problem with that. I think if there if we hadn't been able to see the monster at all uh, throughout the episode, um, that it would have risked getting. Uh, humorous or unnecessarily humorous yeah. at times. Um, I think you need more. Uh, the viewer needs more of a um, uh, uh, more of a of a, of a visible um, symbol uh, to respond to than just some baskets being thrown around in an alleyway and uh, and, that, and that kind of thing. Um, I don't have an issue particularly with the appearance of the monster, but I um, it, the episode needs. It needs that structure. Yeah, it needs that. I think if the monster hadn't been there, there'd have been no way to kick the story of Vincent into gear. Mm. I mean, unless literally it's just they turn up at his house and he's in a good mood and then half an hour later he's in a bad mood. Do you know what I mean? That would have risked... To do it like that would have risked making the mental health thing such a big issue within the episode that it would have... It would probably have taken on comedy value just for that reason. And my, sorry, go on. I know I was only going to say, and then at the end of the episode, what reason could they have had to leave? But you'd have had to set it literally in the last days of his life and have him committing suicide mm. as part of the episode. Otherwise, they'd have had no excuse to get in the TARDIS and go again. Or, or it looks really um, superficial. It, it does, and and it looks uh, it looks uncomfortable them just getting in the TARDIS and going off saying, oh, oh we'll. See you then. And yeah, cheers, Vincent. Because he's in a good mood, so yeah, we'll 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 head off now. And knowing that it's not all going to stay that way, because life's not like that. Yeah, I think I think it's tempting to to see this story split between the Vincent Van Gogh bits and the monster bits as sort of separate entities. But my but, actually, way, but my way of seeing it is the monster is, and you talked about seeing fragments of the monster, mm. and you can't see the whole monster, which is. You you suggested it was good that that you did see bits of the monster, and the monster, the appearance of the monster is a, is is not just a chicken, but it's a it's what's it called? I forgot what chimera, it's called. A chimera, you said. It's a chimera. A so, a hy- a hy- so a hybrid monster. So it's yeah, yeah. hy- like a griffin or a basilisk. Yeah. So it's one of these. It's a dragon with a chicken's head. Yeah. So it's one of these creatures where you can't. And the, the whole point about these chimerical creatures is they come from. Because you see fragments of monsters and you put them together in the wrong way. And so this is a monster which you can't see the whole thing, but Vincent can see the whole thing. And it's a grand, it's a big, major metaphor for the way Vincent sees the world. So Vincent's able to see this 
this entire monster. Which he spells out in the episode. Which he spells, spells out, out episode, how he yeah. sees things, yeah. how he goes out and feels the colours. Yeah. And, and it's also made clear in the episode that, that it's a, another metaphor for the way that Vincent is seen by the people of his time. So the hostility of the townspeople, the villagers, towards Vincent is the same as as the hostility of the... The, the people toward the Grafeus yeah, yeah. towards the because it's the Grafeus is blind in the end. This is the big twist. So the Grafeus is lashing out at things that it can't see. So it's a really complex sort of interlocking series of metaphors. Well, they kind of Vincent and the creature kind of work as and again this is spelled out in the text because this is what the Doctor's using mm. as his point of go between the two points of view yeah. but Vincent and the monster are the mirror to one another yeah or Vincent's work and the monster yeah. so Vincent's painting well, Vincent, the monster well yeah the monster but the monster's blind and it's lashing out yeah and Vincent can see more than anybody else and yeah. they're lashing out at him yeah so yeah. there's kind of a yeah. a symmetry going on between yeah. the two aspects of the story and also obviously um people can't see the monster and until yeah. Until, you know, after the monster's dead, which is... Which is what happens to Vincent. Yeah, yeah. People don't see the value in his work until after he's died. Yeah, including the Doctor. Because we see, as we've seen, the the Doctor's view of the monster changes. The Doctor initially sees the monster as evil when he sees it in the the painting. Well, yeah, this this was the problematic thing we found, wasn't it? Yeah. Is that... When we first see the monster in the painting, the Doctor says, that's an evil face. I recognise yeah. evil when I see it. Yeah. And the issue there was... Well, Tim, your issue yeah. with that was about the first time... I think it's the first time that the word evil is used in that way in the series since it came back in 2005. I may, I may be wrong, but it's a, if it's not the first, it's one of the first. And, and the, the, I know there was a conscious effort to not present things as black and white as good, this is good, this yeah. is evil, um, and, and so forth. So everything Under Russell sh- T. Davis. Under Russell T. Davis, anyway, yes, yeah, sorry. Um, so everything was more sort of shades of grey. Um, and it really st- stuck out to me um, that the Doctor looks at that and says, right, that is evil. Mm. Um, and I thought, okay, you're, you're jumping to an immediate conclusion there. And um, that's that. That didn't sit comfortably uh, with me. Uh, no, it was clumsy. Well, I, I thought. Th- I th- I think it's it was supposed to be like that because because if you look at the, the doctor at the beginning and the doctor when the yeah. monster dies, you can see that the doctor's changed. So well, this was... is this is a sort of a grand. This is the story of of you know the changing. It's not just about the changing perception of Vincent Van Gogh's work, but it's also about how depression is seen because the whole story is about depression so initially you see depression as just madness and that's what the villagers call him just call him mad mm. and the whole episode is about is about demonstrating that depression isn't just madness it's an intrinsic part of somebody's character it's something that's that's there it's well, and the, so the monster is also a meta- it's a big metaphor for depression as well. Yeah, but also, but well, it's either really clumsy or exceptionally brilliant. And I tend, I think, clumsy. Well, when the Doctor first sees it, he says, mm. that's the face of evil. You know, yeah. I know evil when I see it. Yeah. And then he goes into the TARDIS and finally works out what it is. And the TARDIS tells him, it doesn't use the word evil, it uses the word brutal. brutal. Yeah. And it says, this is a brutal race who uh, go around being brutal all around the galaxy. Mm. And if somebody gets left behind, they don't bother going back for him. That's how brutal they are. Yeah. And, and so what we're being told there by the TARDIS is that this species, essentially is, well, brutal, evil, if you want to use that word for it, the word that the Doctor uses at the start. And what happens with the monster is, in this particular episode, it becomes vulnerable because it's blind. Yeah. Now, we've got to take it that the species isn't blind, but that this individual creature has somehow become blinded, and that's what makes it vulnerable. Yeah. But that's, either that's really brilliant... In that what they're saying is actually mankind is a brutal species and the reason why Vincent is so much better than everybody else is because he's the only one who can see things in the way he sees them. 
in which case it's saying I think something a bit clumsy and ge- over generalized about humanity. So that's why I think it's clumsy d- rather than brilliant. I think if you so I I don't think that side of the monster is is part of the kind of the Vincent Van Gogh perception. Humanity. But that's what I mean. I think it's about I think it's about depression. So it starts out the story of depression through history is it starts out being seen as madness, being seen as evil. This yeah, is what happens. Yeah, yeah. Then it's seen as being brutal, effectively, and instinctive, just part of somebody's personality but that's then, uncontrollable. And then finally it becomes understandable. Yeah, and this but, is what happens with the monster. But, but, but for that to work, you would have to have not had the TARDIS describing the species as brutal of the Crefeus. Because then you're either saying that the TARDIS has misunderstood them, mm. and their act, but that would have Ex- to be their actions that have been misunderstood. Except I don't think the species... Of the metaphor, I think this individual monster is a metaphor. Well, that's what I so mean. Actually, that's why so I actually, think it's problematic. So actually, the TARDIS gets it wrong as well because the species well, yes, are brutal, yes. but this is a particularly vulnerable. vulnerable but it's only vulnerable because it's blind. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's why it works because yeah. Vincent's not like everybody yeah. else. Yeah. But then again, that's also why it doesn't work because the things that Vincent suffers from aren't unique to him. Actually, the, the more I think about it, the, I think I think the cleverer it gets because the the fact, oh, no, that, it's clever. the fact that there are several interlocking metaphors, but growing out of it that we that are that, I mean, whether they're intended or not, they are. No, there. I think it's and very clever. And we're picking up on them, so. but I do. But I think it's very clever. But I think in order to in order for that level of cleverness to be validated, it would have to have been more careful. It might have needed to have been developed over a longer period of time than they had. Yeah, maybe. Possibly. But that's what I mean. So those bits where he says it looks like an evil face mm. and the TARDIS yeah. says this is a brutal species, yeah. those look clumsy okay. because the rest of it's so good. Okay. So what I mean is at the start of the episode, you're confronted with a few problematic bits mm. that won't be problematic the first time you watch it. No. But if you rewatch it as Doctor Who fans are wont to yeah. do, they suddenly look like deliberate red herrings yeah. in a way that is almost as if the people making the program are lying to you in order to surprise you with the reality later on. Yeah, because they're very loaded terms, and they and they will generally instill a certain viewpoint in the viewer, your casual viewer or the fan, yeah. um, about what to expect from yeah. from uh, you know from, from the the monster or that character, or whatever, when they when they eventually appear. And if they want you to be surprised at the end when it turns out that what you're expecting is not what you're going to get, then they don't spell it out in black and white. Yeah, you yeah. sort of you hint that it's an evil creature, only for people to find out that it's not. Okay. Rather than telling people it's an evil creature, it just seems as if they're because there are a few instances in that episode, and we discussed this as well. The way you've had to boil down his entire mel- mental illness into forty-five minutes. Yeah, there are a few clumsy bits earlier on when he volunteers, you know, rather too many times yeah. how he's very little self-confidence. Yeah, and it becomes okay. We've got the point that he doesn't have a lot of self-confidence. You're running out of time to tell the rest of the story. Yeah, I mean, I think it is it is bluntly constructed, and they do. Yeah, you might be right that it is perhaps clumsily constructed, or maybe just maybe those just only for the first fifteen minutes. I think the last half an hour is excellent. I think the first the first fifteen minutes is really and for for me enjoyable and entertaining. For me, of all the of all the the celebrity historicals, so called, so Agatha Christie or Shakespeare or Dickens. This is the most successful. It's the most human. The most rounded one. This is the one I engaged with most closely. And really, and part of it's the performance, Tony Curran's performance. But part of it is, is the path that we see him on. The fact that he's put the doctor into an unusual position. (coughs) Bless you. Um, Into such unusual. So we don't see the doctor dealing with these real human issues. That much we see him dealing with sort of fairly standard human. We see him dealing with sadness and loss and grief. I think but maybe the depression is so complex. Yeah, that he, he, can't, he, can't, he can't cure it. It's no, not no. something he can come in and go. Oh, well, this is wrong. This is wrong. Yeah, yeah. And we go. 
everything's yeah. fine. Yeah. I, my work here is done. Uh, I'm yeah. not without. He, he, mm. he, you know. And basically, that's another reason why you need to have the monster there because you do need to have something for the Doctor to cure in the episode. Yes. Yeah. And and also, depression is such a big subject. You need the monster. You need. Well, I was just going to say as much as possible to depict depression without depicting it because yes. you can't. You can't show depression. I mean, we see him have one mood swing where he's crying into his pillow. That's not enough to depict manic depression no. fully. That's just enough to give an impression of it. Yeah. You need things like the monster, and you need things like like Amy's Amy's reactions, or, or, or Amy's lost grief for Rory. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's another, it's another aspect of it. All of these things create this kind of broader texture that says this is about depression. So it's about Vincent van Gogh, but it's also about depression. And that's and why think, the episode's so clever. That's why the episode's better. But that's than... also why I think that first 15 minutes is so clumsy, because mm. really, that in a regular story, there wasn't so much about the subtext. Yeah. So much more about that than it was about the text. If you take the monster as the text and the depression as the subtext, mm. you'd have spent half an hour getting to the point where you find out about Vincent's depression and yes. 15 minutes yeah. learning about it. And then this time, you've got 15 minutes to find out about it and so that you can spend half an hour yeah. discussing it on the screen, yeah. basically. And so the first the 15 minutes... Yeah, so you kind of have to forgive that first that's 15 it. minutes for throwing things at you a bit in order to get to the stuff that's worth having. You've got the comedy yokels who... <laughs> Uh, kind of react to him as well. Yeah, everything else is nicely sort of layered and 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 nuanced the, and, yeah. and the characterization is is wonderful. And then you've got these uh, rather sort of broad stroke um, caricatures, sort of Blackadder esque. Yeah, yeah. Uh, guest character of the week at the at the beginning in the cafe scene, which just doesn't. Well, again, I d- I kind of didn't mind that so much because. Again, it's all about constructing the character for Vincent. And the idea of Vincent is he can see more. He's got more personality. He's got more emotions than anybody else. So in 43 minutes, you have to do this quite It's just quite a way brutally. of demonstrating yeah. So all the other characters are somehow flatter than Vincent. They're less colourful than Vincent. They're less perceptive than Vincent. And they're less, they're less intelligent than Vincent. Vincent's one of these characters you get in Doctor Who's, who's a genius. You get the impression that the psychic paper wouldn't work with him. And yeah. actually, you don't get that impression with somebody like Agatha Christie in in Unicorn and the Wasp. Or even Shakespeare, you're told that he's a genius, but you don't see his genius. Yeah. With this, it's actually, he, he's a genius because of everything that's happening around him. Not through what he says, but through how, through the, how he's presented in juxtaposition with the other characters, I think. Yeah. And I think that's my my defence of them. Well, in fact, the one bit where you should have seen Shakespeare's genius instead, he just quotes J.K. Rowling. Yeah, yeah, which is problematic. I mean, but that was, I think that's fine because that that episode isn't about no anything deeper than getting some Shakespeare jokes. The same as the Agatha Christie of Unicorn and the Wasp. It's it's a comedy episode. So these things happen. I mean, the Dickens, so um, The Unquiet Dead comes a little bit closer to this. The Unquiet Dead is a but little bit about... But it deals with some stuff, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit about depression, in fact. It's, well, it's got same, some yeah, things, but it doesn't sort of really thing, yeah. develop it because it's really about zombies. Yeah, it's it only really gets there at the end, really. Zombies. I mean, maybe the closest is possibly um, uh, uh, The Girl in the Fireplace. Which is, which is well, it's about a different thing, but it covers still, similar territory. Yeah, but it's still a celebrity historical, but about love, rather but than about the it monster. Also, it yeah. also has the advantage of being a celebrity that practically nobody's heard of. Yeah, which says, let's be honest, and I don't think apparently Stephen Moffat hadn't really heard of her. He just read a book. Well, I don't really know what the situation there was because that's in the same series as Queen Victoria, right? So it yeah. didn't need to be a celebrity historical. So I don't know why they actually used a real person. Well, because Stephen Moffat surely had carte blanche about what he wrote about, and he wanted to write. No, a... I think he was to- told to write about Madame de. I Pompadour. thought he'd be reading about about it. I thought he'd read a book about her, and wanted to. I thought the idea was a horse, oh, a horse jumping through a mirror, and he constructed a story That's... based around what he'd read about Madame de Pompadour. I know that was wrong. the. I know that was the one 
moment where he said, uh, as a writer, he stomped, he stamped his foot and said, "No, I have to have this." Right. Okay. Uh, is the is is uh, the tenth Doctor riding a horse, jumping through yes. the mirror? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, they had to try and find a way of doing it because yeah. he, he was he was being <laughs> a, a, I suppose. A, yeah, and also he was mightily pissed off with the Radio Times and not for the last time when they spoiled it right but the idea the point about Madame de Pompadour is nobody really knew who she was well yeah obviously they did but Some she's not did, such but... a sort of a na- she's not a national icon yeah. like Churchill or, or Agatha Christie so you can use her a bit more as a placeholder for other for other issues yeah whereas yeah. here Vincent van Gogh Actually, you don't know a lot about his life. It's not a national icon. Well, it just takes a... But you know about his art. And mm. and this, the episode also spent a lot of time fetishising his, his paintings. Very much which so. Which was one of, my, one of my few issues. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about this. You're not really a Van Gogh fan. No, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of Van Gogh. So when they had, like huge weepy shots of his artwork and the, the particularly the big hero shot zooming in on the daff the daffodils. 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 <laughs> the sunflowers. sunflowers yes. Yeah, close enough. The sunflowers. I was kind of I appreciate, you know, people really like it, but I'm just yeah, it just leaves me a bit cold. I, apart from actually the episode got closest to evangelizing me to Vincent Van Gogh when they're staring up at the sky. And they had that's that's so brilliantly directed. This. Yeah, yeah. And they're staring up at the sky, and the sky slowly morphs into the starry, starry night painting. And that's such a brilliant. That's that's one of the few pieces of kind of abstract, sort of non-literal, non-literal bits of Doctor bits Who. Bits of Doctor Who, and it's brilliant. And yeah, there lots of there are bits of that through this episode. Visually, it's a really. Fantastic. There were moments elsewhere in the episode, and even though you've seen it before, you know it's not going to happen, where you think, is that going to happen again? Right. The bit where Amy, where he looks out of the window and suddenly sees Amy surrounded by sunflowers, you could yes. almost imagine that doing it. But also, and then there's a bit right at the very end, outside the church, where I'm thinking, it almost looks as if it's about to do it again. But also the whole thing, so the Agatha, so Unicorn and the Wasp is filled with, the, is, is filled with these really clumsy puns oh, for Agatha Christie stories. Which is fine because it's a comedy. This is full of allu- allusions to his artwork. So there's one Rather shot. There's one shot of his it. bedroom that's that's almost shot almost like a fisheye lens. Yeah, it's, yeah. It uses a different sort of lens, and it's made to look exactly like. And there's shots of the chair that he uses. Yeah, yeah. So all the way through, and obviously the cafe. And it's all yeah, and it's not accidental by any no, stretch of no. the imagination. And also, it's there in the dialogue as well. Yeah. Instead of having really clumsy puns on titles, yeah, like in the Shakespeare and the Agatha Christie ones, instead they have him talking about his paintings. Yes. But they just mention them briefly and then move on, yeah. and that's a really nice way of doing it because for people who don't know an awful lot about him, you get all these references to things mm. that you then get to see in the film in the form of the paintings themselves. So you can say, oh, yes, now I understand what that's about and that. but in, And so you don't just get a really horrible, really clumsy piece of dialogue in order to which get in, a pun in there. Which, in fairness, when you're dealing with uh, an artist, when you're, when you're making a story around an artist, it's actually a lot easier to do, a, to do visual puns. If you're writing about Agatha Christie, all you've got is either the names of the books or you've got incidents the sort of... from them. Or, or even perceived incidents, because actually... Actually, as I've discovered from... Because I, I went to the Agatha Christie conference at the university a few weeks ago, which talked about the unicorn and the wasp. And it points out that a lot of the things it, it draws on, like a villainous butler and a villainous uh, vicar... These, these, no, these aren't. These are things we think of as being Agatha Christie tropes, but actually they're not Agatha Christie tropes. They're just Agatha Christie genre tropes that aren't from the book. And even the giant wasp isn't from an Agatha Christie book. It's from an Agatha Christie front cover. Yeah. Which it wasn't supposed to be a giant wasp, apparently. It was just a very a wasp very, very close to you. Yes. Apparently, according to the artist of that particular picture. <laughs> yes. Who, who we've, we've met. They talked about this on the Doctor Who Confidential. Oh, really? Yeah. So, yeah, it was just a mistake. But I but, think I've got that book with that cover. Yeah, I've got, I've got it somewhere. And it's brilliant. And I, I thought when I actually saw the book, I thought that would make a brilliant Doctor Who stuff. And now Who's you've it? got it. Now you've got it. But the Vincent Van Gogh... Was it brilliant? 
Unicorn and the Wasp. Yeah. It was all right. I'm not yes. a big fan of Gareth Roberts stuff. As right. we'll discover when we get to the lodger. Next week, possibly. Yeah. Probably my favourite of Gareth Roberts' scripts was The Unicorn and the Wasp. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, it's good fun. I, but, yeah, it's good, yeah, it's good. I wasn't, it's I good wasn't sure it was very sensitive to... To, so this, so Vincent and the doctor was incredibly. So, or I thought it was very sensitive about depression and the treatment of Vincent. Unicorn and the Wasp deals with a, a period of Agatha Christie's life where she effectively has a depressive episode and disappears off to Harrogate. Yeah, and it's very, very so, insensitive yeah. about yeah. it because it presents it as actually, no. actually an alien plot, <laughs> and that's not Unicorn and the Wasp is almost. The anti Vincent and the Doctor. Yes. yes. But yeah. it's still very funny. It's still, you know, it's it's still got got good jokes in it. So go Right. On to the question which was supposed to be the start of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> which I think well, we're been... doing we're doing alright. We're we're actually getting but more you, out than we did last time, I think. But you are me and Sorry. Tim are just sitting here listening. Sorry. I'm going off on one. Um did you like it when you first saw it, Tim? Um I found it a very uncomfortable watch when I first watched it, and I do now. Um, and this is because I deal with uh, situations that include or involve um, people dealing with depression and issues surrounding depression um, on a regular basis, and I felt that the episode was uh, very near the knuckle in the way that it handled it but I'm also conscious that that's possibly my fault as a viewer and not the fault of the episode. Well then okay before we ask anything else about me or Matt two questions arise from there does it work and does it do the subject justice? Does it work as an episode as a story that deals with that and then does it in its dealings with that do that justice? Yes I think it does it does it perfect justice because it uh, shows uh, quite wonderfully, actually, the um, irrationality around the way that people who deal with uh, depression to varying degrees respond to uh, other people and to uh, certain stimuli on a day-to-day basis. The fact that there's no quick fixes there's no answers to these issues at all um and that something the slightest thing can just trigger someone off Mm -hmm. completely and i know the episode has to to do an awful lot in in like 43 minutes or whatever and so you get you get uh, an example of x an example of y and so forth as you go through um I think that they are very well well done in that they show uh, they show um, how people relate to certain stimuli and how they respond um, in a way that doesn't say uh, everyone is that everyone is the other. It's not it's not heavy handed. So, is this one one of those episodes? That I might be misremembering that had one of those rare yes, occasions where it had a sort of if you need more information about this subject the, here's a telephone the, number the only time ever in the yeah. history of Doctor Who if you've been affected by mm. and Did, actually they didn't even have that, that for Adric. I don't remember that yeah that, it was there yeah, yeah. Really? and yeah. that's probably that probably makes the episode stronger because as you say it gives you a sort of a taste of different issues surrounding depression mm. both both with somebody who suffers from depression but also with people who are close to depression and that was obviously quite close to the knuckle with you, um, but then it offers it offers more information from the real world outside. So it's probably I know why I wouldn't have seen it as well because at the end of the titles we'd have switched over to BBC Three for Doctor Who Confidential. There we go. Yeah, without yeah. seeing the, um, yeah, the public yeah. um, service yeah. announcement. And the, and the, and the, uh, the message there is everybody who watched Doctor Who Confidential is probably depressed. Depressed, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. they've missed the telephone number. Number for the depression hotline. Did you think then, and this is a general question, I suppose, did you think then it properly worked as a story that involved those elements? Because I think the big question about it is, does it overbalance too far in favour of its theme as opposed to its story? 
And I know what my answer is. I think it does work. But Tim, do you think it works? Because now I'm trying to push you to find out whether you <laughs> actually did think it was any good. Um, no, I do think it works. Um, and what's, what I've also found, actually, is talking about it this evening and talking through a lot of what the episode represents and what it's trying to do um, has opened up the episode quite a lot to me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, I do think, it, I do think it works. I think, um, I think my own, uh, feelings, way and reaction towards the, um, the issue of depression is possibly more telling than anything else in my, in my, in my initial reaction to the episode. Nor did you get too deep. So do you, do you think this affects people who... So if somebody suffers from depression, do you think they would find this a difficult watch or do you think they would find this helpful? Because obviously you've got you've got direct experience of depression and you found it uncomfortable. So maybe that's that's the sort of person it would actually get at most strongly because you can see if you see depression on a regular basis, then but, yeah. you're more affected by maybe the you're the, the reason you struggle with it is because you're next to depression, but maybe somebody who actually suffers from depression might find it a solace yeah this is the blue box therapy uh, podcast we talk about tim for one hour so you don't have to um i think you're probably very close to the truth in and um potentially i've come into this episode with uh with a lot of baggage um and but other people's baggage but other, yeah exactly yeah. okay carrying other people's baggage whereas People, Which is not to belittle it, but I mean, no. yeah. But people who um, who have uh, you know mental issues, depression um, problems, uh, potentially they would not necessarily um, find solace in the episode. I think, but they'd I think potentially they'd find a different way of relating to it than well, you don't want to say they would find a different way of relating to it than. Uh, than other viewers because that suggests that there's us and them and yeah, it's not yeah. like that but I think I think people with depression issues probably get something different out of the episode yeah. than people who don't have depression issues yeah. I think possibly what I'm bringing to it is that I get something different out of the episode because I carry baggage of like you said of you know, r relating to someone with depression issues. It's, mm. it's also not not what you expect to be doing when you're watching a Doctor Who episode. So when you're watching a Doctor Who episode, you expect a degree of escapism. Yes. And, turn. and so your your description of it at the start of the pod, or when you were saying it, you found it uncomfortable, but good. Yeah. You, you couldn't, you couldn't, you didn't criticise its depiction of depression or what it was trying to do. You just found it uncomfortable. Yeah. And uncomfortable is a perfectly valid reaction for watching something, but possibly not Doctor Who. You no. don't you don't watch Doctor well, Who. Well here's the question then. Does it work as just the text about the alien monster? Is there enough in there that somebody who's not gonna read it on these levels I, well, it's impossible not to understand that this is about somebody who's depressed. But but for somebody who's watching it fairly superficially, is there enough going on there? I, I think so. I mean they do kill the monster off ten minutes before the end. But I think but, what happens at the end, even if you're not necessarily following so closely Vincent's story, I think there's still enough um, incident yeah, yeah. and character beats. Yeah, because even if even if you don't read it as a grand metaphor for depression, like this the I do, you, the, you're still, the you're still, in, you're still strongly engaged. You have to, if you're not strongly engaged with the character of Vincent van Gogh, and we can see from the comments before, everyone was engaged, yeah, yeah. apart from... Um, Somebody you described it Kira as Kami. wet, but that's fine. You know, some people don't have souls, so everybody's <laughs> sorry. Everybody's fully get the majority of people are fully engaged with this character because of the actor, because yeah. of the way he's set up, and you know, after the monster's dead, you've still got that character to round off mm. and and kill brutally. <laughs> so I think I think it does work. I think it works as a story. I th I think it's an unusual Doctor Who story. It's structured unusually. But then a lot of a lot of Stephen Moffat Doctor Who stories are structured very unusually. Well, this is the which point. is why they cause discomfort with Doctor Who fans because they're not three act 
yeah. kind of beginning middle resolution. Yeah. And this is why seasons are the same because they don't follow the same yeah. strict yeah. regimented order yeah. of play as yeah. the Russell T Davis ones. But it's did. fine. I mean, stories stories don't have to follow that. that pattern. Well, this, I was just going to say this is the point during series five. Amy's choice and this, where it was starting to become apparent what what the difference was would be between Russell T Davis and mm. Stephen Moffat. The the first half of C- series five was basically the same sort of thing that Russell T Davis had been doing, but yeah. just with a sort of Stephen Moffat whitewash. And now with Amy's choice mm. and with Vincent and the Doctor, you're actually starting to see different kinds of Doctor Who no, stories d- coming through. The more I think about it, the more I like Amy's choice as well. The more Amy's choice is actually sticking with me since since I saw it for the podcast. Yeah, I keep going back to it in my head and comparing stories to it. I think it's a really underrated story in the season. I don't well, think no, it's as good as underrated. I don't think it's as good as Vincent and the Doctor because I think Vincent and the Doctor is a sort of miniature masterpiece, but. But I think Amy's choice is it's a really funny, really funny story. A small cast, um, almost they're they're almost television plays, aren't they? Yeah. Regardless of the of the the whole sort of Doctor Who um, world that's surrounding them, Mm. they're almost just just sort of black box theatre pieces. Yeah, chamber pieces in in themselves. Yeah. Well, this is what Stephen Moffat does. Yeah. And so I suppose since that subject's raised its head, we should raise the subject of Stephen Moffat, perhaps. Authorship. Yeah, because I don't think... Well, I think the issue is the writer's tale. Mm. Because... And it's not just the writer's tale, but the writer's tale is kind of where it became defined. And I suppose the writer's tale becomes a metaphor for the issue. But the issue is the authorship during the Russell T Davis years. And it was laid down in the writer's tale and elsewhere, almost as if it was the holy writ, that what would happen is, if you weren't a known writer before you worked for Doctor Who, then Russell T. Davis would rewrite your work. And if you were well enough known that your agent could get you a deal where you had what's called final draft, he wouldn't. But in the real world, things aren't quite as black and white as that. And so... When you get to somebody other than Russell T. Davis being in charge of Doctor Who, it doesn't work in the same way as it did with Russell T. Davis. Mm. And of course, the situation is not that somebody who's a well-known name gets to have the absolute final draft. What that person gets is approval of the final draft. So what happens more often than not when Stephen Moffat gets big name writers like Richard Curtis, mm. Simon Nye, who did Amy's Choice, and Neil Gaiman, mm. is that they'll come in, they will, whether it's the idea that they bring to the series or something that Stephen Moffat suggests or whether it's something that the two of them talk out and come to a decision on, they will go away and write a script. But Richard Curtis is too busy with far better paying projects than to do three, four, five, six, seven or eight different drafts of a 45-minute television programme. So, to the best of my understanding, the situation is that Richard Curtis came in, agreed to do a story with Stephen Moffat, they discussed what it would be about, Richard Curtis went away and wrote the Richard Curtis draft, and then when it came time to organising that that script into something that could actually go before the cameras as part of Series 5, Stephen Moffat had to go away and do that work on it himself. Yeah. So the version of Vincent and the Doctor that you see on the television screen is actually the Stephen Moffat draft of Vincent and the Doctor. Yeah. <clears throat> now the interest, and it's the same thing with The Doctor's Wife and Neil mm-hmm. Gaiman, and the same thing with Amy's choice. Yeah. I mean, this is my understanding of it. I don't know these things. Amy's choice might, might, might not be because, you know, uh, Simon Nye isn't quite as busy, you'd imagine. As... No, perhaps not, but he's but, still pretty yeah. big. Yeah. Um, but the point is, I said this before we sat down and watched it, and I said, 
you know, it's going to be impossible to really be able to say this line belongs to this author and this yeah. line belongs tempt- to another. It's very tempting, though. It's an interesting way of... Yeah. yeah. Well, we did. I did actually stop it at one point. Or not stop it, but sort of burst out and say, right, which one of them wrote that line? Yeah. And we all looked at each other and said, it could be neither of them. Yeah, yeah. Didn't the point... win an award for it? Well, yeah, but the then episode, there's the an episode. etiquette in television oh, sure. as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, it's not like he didn't do a oh, huge amount of work no, on it. No, no. Yeah. And Stephen Moffat, I mean, Stephen Moffat will have written final drafts of most of the episodes. There's yeah. a, either a gloss or, you know, yeah. or a full rewrite. Well, this is how it works. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my view when I was watching it, my instinct is to to think that that Richard Curtis would have would have brought the idea of Vincent van Gogh's depression and making that centre, that feels like a big Richard Courtesy thing because he. And, and the character of Doctor Black is a very. Bill Nighy. Bill, Bill Nighy yeah. Well, the actor, yeah, but also the character <laughs> feels like a very Richard Curtis yes. character, regardless yeah. of who's playing it. Yeah. So, but that means that a lot of the description, so the 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 speech where they're looking at stars, that felt like a Richard Curtis bit for me. But again, it's almost impossible to to separate the two because you know because it also Stephen feels Moffitt very Stephen Moffat could, yeah. could have done a pass. And I don't think I don't think Richard Curtis would have completely stepped back from it. I think he would. It would. It's the sort of thing that would have bounced back and forth between. Well, them. as you know, Moffat would have done possibly, a lot of possibly where where Emma Freud's role comes in. Yeah, as, yeah. As script editor for that. Yeah, episode. yeah. Chelsea, yeah, was she was sort of channeling. Yeah, she's presumably what, the go-between yeah, between yeah, well, yeah. Well, the various doing, different versions of the script. Yeah, he was yeah. Off doing other things, and she'd have been there just yeah. calling from one room to the next. But there were some really, now. really nice descriptions of Van Gogh's work, which, which, it's tempting. It's tempting to. It's difficult not to see that coming from somebody who'd recently read a lot of work material about Vincent Van Gogh, which. Richard Curtis had done. We know that the, he'd done a lot of research into into Van Gogh before he'd written it, and that research comes out in certain moments in the story. Such as what I think like, feels more Stephen Moffat is the uh, flow of the dialogue. Yeah, which is yeah. A, and the pa- and the pace and also and also the action scenes, the way of scripting action scenes. Which, yeah, yeah. Which Richard Curtis, as far as I know, hasn't done. That's a lot of that sort of 45-minute action yeah, yeah. television. Yeah. And I think that's a skill that Stephen Moffat would have to do. So the Doctor running around with the mirror, that presumably would have been scripted. I mean, it didn't have that much dialogue in, but it would have been scripted by yeah, Stephen yeah, Moffat yeah. afterwards just to get that sense well, of pacing. Well, I think... I, I got the... If I was to put a nail in it, I would say that the story feels like a Richard Curtis story, mm-hmm. but the plot feels like a Stephen Moffat plot. Yeah. In other words, uh, the order and sequence of events... So the narrative. Yeah, essentially feels more like a Stephen Moffat thing imposed upon elements that Richard Curtis has put in front of him. And so there's probably a sharing of the dialogue between the two different dichotomies. And and actually, interestingly, for what we've talked about, that's the bit that we found a little bit clumsy. Was was the the pacing in the order? The well, actual, that might be why. The actual meat of the story, the what you would think of Richard as the Richard Curtisness of the story, it's that's the unbelievable bit. That's the real richness of the story because the themes and the actual, you know, the the content and the subtext. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's probably, perhaps... if he did win an award, he probably deserved mm. to pick up that award. I think. And that's probably why it feels slightly clumsy. Maybe mm, yeah. if you've got one writer who's taking elements and scenes and bits of dialogue and having to restructure it for a 45-minute television episode. Yeah. Yeah. So that would perhaps explain that. You don't like Bill Nye, Tim? I don't like Bill Nye, We discovered no. this. Yeah. Um, what was it? We, we made a really good pun in the first recording. He was a uh, nicer. He was a nicer. <laughs> uh, so, well, you said he was a nay. <laughs> Yeah, Bill Nye. Yeah. So, what's your problem with Bill Nye? My problem with Bill Nye is that I find that he lacks um, focus and energy mm. in performance. Uh, okay. I think he sucks the energy out of any scene that he's oh, in. You okay. usually um, dialogue bandying around here, there, and everywhere, and Bill Nye gets the line, and then just shoom, everything just drops, drops dead. Right. Yeah. Um, 
T.P. McKenna in The Greatest Show in the Galaxy mm-hmm. does exactly the same thing for me. He spoils Greatest Show in the Galaxy because right. Cap- Captain Cook is a dull character. Yes. But he plays him in a very... With bluster and pomposity. Uh, he, ju- no, he just plays him in a very um, a lethargic... Okay. Thrown away. Way, right. yeah, yeah, it is. And it just... He just, like I said, he just sucks all the energy out of it. That's my okay. usual issue with with okay. Bill Nye. Okay. Um, I have to say that I, I quite liked his uh, role as Doctor Black. Um, mm. There were a couple of little uh, moments, a little, a few, um, just what well, you said before, Nyeisms. Yes. Uh, that that niggle slightly. He's an incredibly twitchy person. He is. He which is. I really like. Well, part um, of the reason for his twitchiness is because of his arthritis. Uh, yes, or he's got a. Um, I oh, think whatever it's, it is, it's not, not yeah, terrible it's, now. <laughs> no, it's a it's a shortening of the tendons in his, oh, in his wrist. It oh, means he can't open. Oh, yeah, right. it's quite a common thing. It's fixable. Oh. It's not a sort of. Um, uh, uh, Dennis Potter had it as well, but Dennis Potter had about five or six different things yeah. wrong, and there were probably more important things wrong. Dennis Potter to to fix the shortening of the tendons. I think. But yeah, Bill Nye yeah. can't open his hands properly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, but yeah. his face his face twitches as well. Yeah. So there's a there is a very he's got a very distinctive performance. And my my view of it, and it's a bit like Tom Baker, that if you buy into the Tom Bakerness of Tom Baker, mm. then anything he does in fa- is fantastic. But if you don't, if you find Tom Baker irritating then there's no Tom Baker performance that you're ever going to like so because sixty percent or seventy percent of every Tom Baker performance is Tom Baker, Baker. and the rest is acting. I'd never thought of that before, but you're you're probably absolutely right. Whereas, yeah, because I've always bought into Tom Baker. Yeah, and same as um, Brian Blessed. You yeah, can't if you Brian, don't if you yeah, find Brian. I, oh, you don't like Brian I'm Blessed. I'm not. I, he's he's I, I, out of the window. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting to see a performance uh, performance by, uh, by Brian Blessed that. Wins me over. Have you seen I Claudius? I haven't. You see, and that's watch I Claudius. Yeah, that's that. It's I really the most do want to see or survivors. But since then, he's watch, just been watch survivors. But it's, it's, he had a brilliant um, part in Survivors. Surely it's Flash Gordon. I don't think which one it was. I'm trying to think if it was Survivors. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Survivors. He played like a muscly hard man. I just think Flash Gordon has probably spoiled him. Wrong. Yeah, yeah, ever, ever yeah. since Flash Gordon, it's all been Gordon's alive, and that's, yes, that's it. I mean, yeah, he's a. It's become he, a self character. He's yeah. He's quite. He's he, actually. I, t- I, I tell um, a lie. He's not. He's quite nicely nuanced in uh, Cygnus Alpha, the third Blake Seven episode. <laughs> Um, I, I was I was going to say Ken, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, <laughs> where he he played um, the, old, the, the ghost. Wrong podcast. No, he played the ghost, uh, Hamlet's father, Hamlet's dead father. Good grief! It's been Incre- so long since I saw saw Incredibly, that, I, I, he's incredible in that. Yeah. But Sickness Alpha, I haven't seen Blake Seven. That haven't much. you? Okay. Uh, he's, no, I, I rather like. <laughs> Thanks. That's right. I, I rather like him in Signals Alpha, but yeah, okay. everything else—it's just—it's all it, like you said. He's become a self caricature, and he plays um, it up. Yeah, right. Yeah, we've yeah. gone over an hour. I'm cutting this short. Okay. The name Vincent and the Doctor. A lot of people didn't like that when they heard it. I think it's a really nice name yeah, for fine. a Doctor Who episode. It's, it's unusual and yeah. odd, and yeah. isn't it a play on one of his paintings as well? Isn't oh, I don't know. It could be. I don't know. But he had a painting about the. He painted the doctor. Yeah. So, so it could be a. It could be a riff on that as well. What else would you call it? I can't think of anything else that you'd call it. Oh, you Doctor Who the and space the space chicken. The, space, yeah. the four-legged space chicken. The depression of doom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or the doom of depression. Yeah. The town of down. Maybe not. Oh my yes. gosh. Right, we better score this sucker. <laughs> okay. Tim out of ten. I'd have to give it eight. I don't... Go on. I'm, I'm gonna give it eight as well. Really? Maybe nine, maybe nine. Oh, I thought you could go for a ten to... on this one. No, I know what you've said about I don't it. like scoring things out of ten because there's too too few few numbers to choose. Numbers. <laughs> I mean it's not as good. I didn't enjoy it as much as uh Blink. I didn't think it was as powerful. It didn't work on me as well as Blink. But it worked on me pretty damn well. So, nine. Oh, you've gone up from an eight to a nine. Yeah, yeah, I took it up from an eight to a nine. I go for a nine as well. Yeah. Because I, I think it's pretty damn close to being as good as Doctor Who can be. Mm. 
But yeah, there's just a bit too much clumsiness. Yeah. In order for it to be, because I think in order to be a ten, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just have to yeah. hit a certain mm. level. There are still there are still stories that I would go back to, like Day of the Doctor, and Blink, um, that I would actually seek out and watch again before I watch this one again. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Right, next week, I'm not sure who's going to be here, but next week we will be talking about The Lodger. So we'll be back to Gareth Roberts. Excellent. That'll be interesting. (laughs) But until then... I was Matt. I was Tim. And I was JR. And we'll speak again soon. (laughs) 